This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk all about the latest in federal politics, including the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Then, Professor David George Haskell, a professor of biology and environmental studies at the University of the South, joined me to talk all about his book, The Songs of Trees. Stories from Nature's Great Connectors. Then, Laureate Professor Nick Talley, Editor-in-Chief of the Medical Journal of Australia, joined me to talk all about the coronavirus pandemic and Australia's response. We talk about Australia's healthcare system and its challenges, including ICU bed and ventilator capacity in Australia, the widespread concern about personal protective equipment supplies, as well as whether the testing Australia is currently undertaking is enough to reveal the true extent of COVID-19 infection in the Australian population. Nick Talley is a physician, neurogastroenterologist and a world-leading medical researcher. Then, finally, Dr Emma Shortis, a research fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, joined me to talk all about the latest in US politics. We talk about President Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic in America, as well as the response of the governors in various states that are affected, including Michigan and New York. I'm very glad that I can now speak with Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent from New Matilda, and we are talking federal politics. Hi there, Ben. G'day. Hello. I can hear you. Yay, the trusty <laughs> phone. Yeah. Can't <laughs> be a bad technology sometimes. I know, yeah. <laughs> I love a landline. Um, now, let's chat about the week that has been federal politics, and there's a huge amount to cover. Um, first up, what is probably in people's minds the most is what was just announced yesterday in a very wordy press conference from Scott Morrison, who eventually um, told us that he has a plan for workers to keep them in jobs while businesses go into, quote-unquote, hibernation. Um, those businesses, particularly thinking about places like retail shops uh, who have had to close their doors and have chosen to do so, like Meyer over the weekend, Smiggle. There's a number of um, shops that have now closed their physical stores and therefore reduced their staff. And uh, obviously you can't have everyone going on to uh, New Start or the job seeker allowance because it is really difficult to get back into work once you've actually lost your job. So what is the plan um, that Scott Morrison and the Treasurer has have come up with um, and is it what Labor had been calling for? Yes, so yesterday afternoon Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg announced the third tranche of coronavirus stimulus. So this is the uh, not the first, not the second, but the third effort that they've had a go at in trying to deal with the economic fallout to this pandemic. And this is the so-called JobKeeper payment. This is a $130 billion wage guarantee. It's probably the most significant government wage subsidy in Australian history, and I think it shows the magnitude of the task ahead of the government. Um, there's no doubt that it's a very significant package. So how will it work? Around 6 million workers will receive a fortnightly payment of $1,500 through their employer. Um, it will apply to sole traders and it will apply to casuals who've been working with their employer for more than 12 months. And, of course, it will also apply to full-time workers. And these are workers who might have lost their jobs or been stood down by their employer 
um, and it's for businesses that have been significantly impacted by the coronavirus. So um, there's a lot of details that we're still not completely sure about, um, but it's a very, very significant package, no doubt about that. Indeed. And uh, we did hear from Jennifer Westacott, who's the CEO of the Business Council of Australia, uh, this morning talking about the fact that the BCA, who represents the largest companies in Australia, had been calling for um, a, a wage guarantee of about 1375 a week because they wanted it to be uh, the minimum wage. The government has um, gone over that amount and, as you said, said uh, suggested 1500 is a better number and is essentially um, a median wage, 70% of a median wage. So they're um, trying to encapsulate um, what might cover enough of people's regular costs that are already built into their uh, household budgets at the moment. Do you think that um, the payment would be sufficient in terms of the rate that they've decided on and the fact that um, it's not necessarily a wage subsidy per se in the, in the definition that Labor had been calling for? Yeah, that's right. It won't be paid directly to employees. So Labor had been calling for the government to cover... 80% of the employee's previous wage um, up to a certain kind of threshold. Um, that's not what the government's done. They've gone for a flat rate of 1500 which, again, as you mentioned, is yeah, around about two-thirds of the median wage. So, um, you know, for some people that'll be a considerable step down from what they're currently getting paid. Um, for a few lucky workers, it will actually be more than what they were currently getting paid. So that will be a bonus for them. Um, there's also patchy eligibility. I think that's worth pointing out. Um, the, uh, some of the think tanks and the trade unions have already pointed out that perhaps a million casual workers will not be covered by this because, of course, they'll have been working casually for their employer for less than 12 months. As we know, casual workers are often fairly transient and not necessarily uh, particularly long-term in some of their employment patterns. Um, but it will cover sole traders, that is, ABN holders, small business people who have just a single person in their small business. Uh, and that's been the big gap in the stimulus so far. So that covers a lot of artists, musicians, performing artists, workers, who freelancers who might have been getting paid simply through their ABN and they will be able to claim this JobKeeper payment. So that is potentially very helpful for them. That is good to hear. And uh, over the weekend, we heard calls from the childcare sector to give support to them. Do you think that this uh, wage guarantee that the government has announced will help keep the childcare sector afloat? Um. Look, uh, I don't think it will because the childcare sector is in deep trouble owing to, um, obviously, owing to the pandemic, like everything else in our economy. Um, but in particular, the childcare sector has been heavily affected because a lot of parents have been, uh, you know, keeping their kids back from childcare for obvious reasons. Um, and the, the childcare sector is in deep crisis. So um, I don't know if it will be enough to save the childcare sector. Uh, Labor says the childcare sector needs a proper bailout in and of itself, um, you know, similar to maybe what the airlines have already received. Uh, and it's just one aspect of the economy that's in deep trouble. Of course, there are many other sectors of the economy also in deep trouble. Yes, well, obviously we know that women are overrepresented in that sector and they're also overrepresented in uh, care sectors as well. So a lot of people have been highlighting the gender element of this and making sure that we um, do not kind of further entrench inequity that already exists in our system. 
Yep, absolutely. There is a lot of inequality baked into the system. Um, Childcare sector workers have a fairly low wage compared to some of the other workers in the economy. Um, There's a whole bunch of problems. I I think that's an example of how the pandemic has once again highlighted some of the structural inequalities that have already existed in our economy um, and that are really um, bringing them to the fore. So, you know, one of the really big issues so far in the crisis has been the problem of casual workers and gig workers, uh, people who don't have full-time ongoing employment as part of their employment contracts. Uh, And, you know, the the pandemic's really brought to the fore just how um, insecure so many of our work work relationships are. So, I mean, I think this is another example where uh, a pre-existing problem has really been brought into crisis by this pandemic. Exactly. Um, Let's also talk quickly about the telehealth measures that were also announced uh, over the weekend and are really a big coup for the medical sector who had been calling for increased telehealth for a long time. Um, And we're now seeing that uh, that has been broadened out from being applicable to vulnerable individuals as as of last week um, to now being applicable to everyone in the population of Australia and that who has a Medicare card um, and that would apply to GPs, psychologists, midwives, nurses, psychiatrists, uh, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech pathologists, uh, social workers and dietitians for eating disorders. So that does cover a very broad range of services and the government has indicated that they want to make sure that uh, the the kind of unintended consequences of a pandemic do not arise where some people's uh, regular or ongoing health conditions can um, be impacted because the healthcare system is focusing on, on other priorities. Yeah, I mean, um, it just shows you how quickly things are moving. So this was a $1.1 billion telehealth package announced earlier yesterday before the wage subsidy, uh, a very significant package that will enable, as you mentioned, uh, a whole bunch of people to access healthcare over the phone or over Skype or or video internet. Um, It's something that um, health reformers have been calling for for a long time, uh, and it's something that... But once again, you know, it shows just how quickly our governments can move when they really want to. Um, and I think it will be really positive. It will enable people to get care from their home during this period of confinement. Um, and it will hopefully take some of the pressure off uh, the really hard-pressed areas of our health system, which, as we know, are starting to ramp up into some serious coronavirus presentations. Yes, and one of the elements that may apply to those listening is that um, doctors are being giving are being given a. Uh, bulk billing incentive that is double their usual incentive to bulk bill patients that they see both in person um, as if they keep their practice open for those physical consultations but also over the phone so that would make a substantial difference to people who are financially struggling if doctors are able to increase the rate of bulk billing. Yeah, and it's such an irony, isn't it? I mean, this is the same government that fought a long-running war with GPs over the Medicare rebate and over payments for health for health workers and, and for funding um, into the health system. You know, uh, this is a government that's consistently refused to increase funding um, to GPs and to the health system, and now they're being forced by events to actually move on this stuff. Uh, you know, I think it's also worth pointing out just how large the stimulus package announced over the last couple of weeks is. It's 
it's now up into the 200 billion kind of territory uh, once you count all the fiscal measures and that's not even counting the money that the reserve bank is pumping into the economy so it's an extraordinarily large amount of money that the government has decided to start spending in this crisis and it really gives the lie to all the rhetoric we've had for a decade now about how important balancing the budget is and how bad government debt is and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the government's going to borrow all this money from the international money markets, right? And it's going to be able to do that very, very cheaply because uh, it will effectively be paying no interest on these uh, government bonds. So um, I think it's it's actually a welcome package altogether. And I think we do actually have to give the Morrison government some credit. And I know people will be amazed at me saying that, but Uh, It is actually a bold response to the crisis we face. It's good to see some movement on it. Um, I know that we are still following in the footsteps of other countries, but at least we are catching up now. One of the other elements that is a little bit controversial, um, particularly for Labor, who initiated the superannuation system, is that uh, the government has suggested that if people are strapped for cash, that they should dip into their superannuation in order to cover that gap. What are your thoughts on how that area has progressed. Yeah, so that that is controversial and that's already showing signs of destabilising the superannuation industry. Of course, superannuation is a monster uh, amount of money. It's about $2 trillion uh, that people have socked away in their super accounts. Of course, we don't have a choice. We all have to pay our super in. Uh, The government's allowing people who have fallen on hard times due to the pandemic to withdraw $10,000 from their super accounts this year and another $10,000 next year to tide themselves over, you know, for example, to meet emergency needs. Um, Now, the superannuation industry is deeply worried about this because it means that all of a sudden, instead of money constantly going in, they're suddenly having to start paying money out. Um, And they're having to do that at a time when the markets have collapsed and the Australian stock market's off about 35% from its peak in February. So uh, there are some implications down the track. And, of course, for the people themselves, particularly for low-income earners who don't have a lot of super, they're taking that money directly out of their retirement savings. And that's why um, people like the the opposition, the Labor opposition, oppose this measure. They think the government should be trying to do better on welfare measures. Yes, well, the Reserve Bank has been making, um, I guess, some crisis arrangements to uh, try and figure out what they might be able to do in order to put uh, support the superannuation uh, sector, but given that they didn't foresee needing to remove or take funds back out of what is often a very long-term investment uh, portfolio. Um, that said, Jane Hume, an Assistant Treasurer and Senator uh, of the Liberal Party, and also Andrew Bragg, have been um, attacking the superannuation sector, saying that they should have seen a crisis and downturns coming and have prepared for this rainy day. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? So superannuation is set up for what the finance wizards call long-term investments. You know, it's all, they go long. Um, so a lot of the super funds um, don't have a lot of cash lying around. You know, they don't have, like, you know, big you know, bank accounts full of just ordinary cash, what they do is they invest them in uh, income-producing assets. You know, they might buy toll roads or they might buy uh, infrastructure investments or they might have real estate, very long-term investments that can't easily be liquidated and which you wouldn't want to liquidate in the middle of a downturn just because you have liquidity issues. 
So, yeah, you're right. The Reserve Bank is backstopping the superannuation industry, and that's a good thing. That's what we want. Um, I don't necessarily agree with this criticism from Andrew Bragg and Jane Hume, however, because, really, that's the purpose of superannuation funds, is to invest for the long term, to produce returns for members, and uh, no one would have expected uh, this kind of call on their funds to be made. Yes. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much is withdrawn from the super sector. The government thinks it might be up to $27 billion, but the industry says it could be up to $60 billion. So that's certainly not a shabby number. Um, one of the other elements that people have been really uh, anxious about, and no doubt there'll be people listening who this applies to, there are so many renters in Australia who are now um, obviously concerned and having a great deal of financial stress. And we've just recently seen an announcement around tenancies and preventing evictions over financial hardship. What exactly is the arrangement that's been announced for residential renters and tenancies? Um, so there are no arrangements in place currently, but the National Cabinet has signalled that it will put in place, uh, the states will put in place some kind of legislative framework to deal with rental moratoriums, perhaps, or some kind of uh, legislative deal to stop evictions, at least for the next six months. Um, and that's um, that's going to be really interesting. So in the interview, in one of his press conferences over the weekend, Scott Morrison said, if you're a renter and you're in trouble, uh, have a conversation with your landlord. Now, <laughs> many people reacted somewhat uh risibly to that suggestion because uh, those of us who are renters will know that uh, landlords aren't often the most sympathetic uh, ears for those kind of complaints. Um, but, uh, of course, um, landlords have their own issues where they need to pay mortgages. So will landlords get some mortgage relief um, in order to give their tenants some rent relief? I think all of those details really still haven't been worked out. Uh, and that's an interesting one. Um, but, yeah, we do expect some kind of legislation to start working its way through the state parliaments to give the ability for renters maybe to um, to not be evicted. Um, how that will actually work down the track, we still don't know. So will renters have to pay all of the rent that they're in arrears once this pandemic is over, or does the rent just magically disappear? Um, can they all be evicted in six months' time when the eviction moratorium lapses? I think there's a whole bunch of questions we need answered. Indeed, clearly needs to be worked out, um, and it, I'm sure it will be state by state. And also the other issue that has arisen, and it was one of the major announcements that uh, occurred in the last few days, was um, essentially that all travellers coming back into Australia who are obviously, um, they must be Australian citizens or Australian residents uh, to actually be eligible to even come into the country, but all of those people who have come in uh, as of midnight, I believe it was on Saturday night, um, have to now be quarantined in hotel accommodation for two weeks. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that's happening. And, and some of those travellers are a bit grumpy about being locked up in four-star <laughs> hotels. Uh, very disappointing for them, I know. But um, I think they'll be fine. Um, yeah, and this is part of the government's belated response, I think most people would agree, uh, to the influx of travellers, particularly Australians returning from overseas, some of whom might have been exposed to the virus. Of course, we've already talked about last week the debacle with the Ruby Princess cruise liner where 2,700 people were allowed to just walk off the cruise ship. Um, more than 300 of those have since gone on to be infected by COVID-19. So um, the government's trying to 
think, play catch up here on on what has been one of the the worst failures, really, of the coronavirus response, which is. Um, you know, after an early um, response to the issue of Chinese people or, or pe- travellers from China coming to Australia carrying the virus, they were then, I think, very slow to restrict travel from particularly the United States. And as we know, it's been travellers come from the United States that have been some of the main vectors for the infection over the last fortnight. Yes, and let's also um, mention and discuss what we I guess, briefly discussed last week when it was announced, which was the additional um, supplement to the job seeker allowance, um, which is essentially what we used to call New Start. And uh, there's been a huge amount of, I guess, controversy around the fact that the online Centrelink system is still very much struggling to keep up with the demand that's been placed on it um, and that people are obviously waiting and needing to have the application processed in a, a kind of fast time frame, um, but the time frame that often a lot of people and applicants who've been lucky enough to submit their application have seen is that it could take up to five to six weeks to be processed. Um, I think it's very patchy, and so some people will receive a payment as early as today. That's the first of the $750 stimulus payments that will go to pensioners, people on benefits, um, people on, on job seeker. Um, they will get one of those $750 payments. Yeah, I'm talking now. about new applicants. New applicants are in, yeah, they're, they're much further down the pipeline. And, of course, Centrelink has is, is got some well-documented problems with dealing with the, the workload there. So, yeah, the government has already said that those people won't be seeing any payments until later in April. Um, and, of course, then there's also processing issues on top of that. Um, they have said that you will be back paid from the day that you are able to lodge your claim. So, of course, you know, where people have been able to actually get one of those CRN numbers and get onto the books of Centrelink, um, you'll be back paid from that particular day. Uh, but, yeah, um, for a whole bunch of people who've gone on Centrelink for the very first time, there's no help coming in the immediate future. And that's a worry, isn't it? Yeah, I think it certainly is. It's if people don't have income right now and um, are, are needing some form of income in the meantime, it might be pretty difficult, particularly if people are renting. It often um, takes up about half of their usual salary to cover rent and then all the other associated costs. Yeah, and I think that highlights the one of the peculiarities of the government stimulus response, which is that most of the money has been pumped in through either Centrelink or through existing businesses. So they haven't done a stimulus payment just to ordinary citizens the way Kevin Rudd did in 2009. <clears throat> and I think that's going to be a problem, I think, particularly in the next month or so, because there's a whole bunch of people whose income has gone to zero and they're, they're waiting, they're desperately waiting on those Centrelink payments. And, yeah, as you, as you point out, you know, if you're, if you're, on the, if you're a low-income earner in a capital city, you're probably paying a pretty high amount of your income every month in rent. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of economic hardship that's still to come. Yeah. Um, just finally, there's an interesting statistic that's just come out about an hour ago, which was that as of 8am today, over 113,000 Australian businesses have registered their interest in the new JobKeeper wage guarantee from the government, which will um, provide $1,500 per fortnight for those employers to retain 
their employees. So it seems like that is having a huge amount of um, uptake and, and interest and it'll be interesting to see whether it does have a substantial effect on job losses. Yeah, it's an extraordinary response and I think it shows the extraordinary level of hardship out there in the community. Um, I, I think it will have an impact. Um, $130 billion, anyway you look at it, that's a lot of money. So it really will, I think, make a, a big difference. And I particularly welcome the fact that sole traders will be eligible. So these are the very people that we knew that were really affected by a lot of these um, the coronavirus restrictions, you know, your freelancers, um, your, your small business contractors, those kind of people, they weren't able to get any other stimulus us at all uh, and this is something that they can now apply to so I think that could be really really helpful. Mm. And just finally Ben we should mention the changing rules that have just occurred from uh, being able to have 10 people gather um, publicly in some circumstances down to just two people together unless you're in a family grouping Um, and that's both in your home in terms of you can't have people over for a dinner party, Um, it still has to be your own family and then also outdoors it needs to um, reduce down to groups of two. So that seems like it is a huge step in the number of um, people allowed to kind of have free movement and um, be grouped around together. Oh yeah, so we're now into stage three restrictions in both New South Wales and Victoria And as you say, that means that, yeah, you can't be out and about with any more than one other person unless it's in your family group. Uh, Both the state governments have also cracked down really hard on non-essential travel. So if you're outside your home, really you you need to have a a valid excuse or you could face a fine or even in New South Wales imprisonment, which some people think is way over the top. Um, And so the valid excuses are things like you're going to work, you're going to the shops to buy food, um, you're exercising but only on your own um, or you're with a family group. So um, there's pretty significant restrictions now on movement and on social distancing. So, um, yeah, we're moving, I think, pretty pretty soon to like a full lockdown. Yeah, it certainly is in some cases already having a bit of a default lockdown with the effects on businesses and them deciding to preempt that and close uh, before the government mandates their closure. Oh, absolutely. I think more and more businesses now are just closing because there's no customers. And this highlights, again, just how devastating the pandemic has been for economic activity. As we talked about last week, it's not just a demand shock. It's not just that people aren't spending. It's a supply shock in that uh, the restrictions have closed economic activity and shut down whole supply chains. So it's really serious. But of course, you know, we know why we're doing this. We're doing this to try and halt the spread of a really dangerous virus. And there is some early evidence over the weekend that Australia's curve is starting to flatten, and that's really, really encouraging. So watch this space, I guess, and keep your 1.5 metres and keep washing your hands and doing all those things that the health authorities are telling us to do. Exactly. Ben, it's been great to chat with you today. Thanks for taking us through the latest developments in federal politics, and I hope you and your family are also keeping well. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. 
I'm going to head to the phone and speak with Professor David George Haskell, who is a Professor of Biology and Environmental Studies at the University of the South. He's also a Guggenheim Fellow and he's written a book It's called The Songs of Trees, Stories from Nature's Great Connectors. It's out through Black Ink in Australia. And uh, David has written previous books and a very well-known book um, that you may be familiar with um, is called The Forest Unseen. And that was published in 2012. It won a number of awards. And uh, Professor Haskell has published a number of essays, op-eds and poetry, as well as scholarly research. So I'm very pleased now to welcome him on the phone. And hopefully we're all good to go. Hello there, David. Hello, Amy. It's a pleasure to join you here by phone. Yes, it's great to finally speak with you and hear your voice. And thanks so much for joining us today from uh, the United States of America. Yes, thank you. It's a a pleasure to to be with you. And right now I'm sitting in in Colorado. Out of the window, I can see the uh, snow melting off some of the foothills. So we're still in the tail end of winter here. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, I was just going to ask you, where where are you based? Um, It's interesting that uh, you say Colorado. For those who aren't familiar with Colorado and the landscape, um, you just painted a beautiful picture. But what are some of the other elements of Colorado that you find so um, stimulating and inspiring? Well, Colorado is is a state situated right in the center of the country. Uh, It's a a long, long drive to any coast from here, so it's not a good place for swimmers, unfortunately, (laughs) unless you can find the pool. Um, But the Rocky Mountains run down the the center as a big, almost like a spine down the center of the United States. And where I live in in Boulder, uh, Colorado, uh, the mountains rise up from here. We're on this very high plain. It's from here out east. It's all flat. And then it goes up to mountains that are 14,000 feet tall. Uh, so completely treeless, uh, com- um, totally covered in snow and ice for most of the year, and in some years for all of the year. And then down on the plains here, we get more pine trees and so on. So the scenery is, is very varied. It's, it's very dramatic. Uh, there's not much oxygen as you get up into the mountains, so you get a good workout walking up there. And the, the trees here are just phenomenal, particularly in the lower elevations, the ponderosa pines, which have this, this beautiful piney smell mixed with some vanilla. Uh, just it's a gorgeous place to go to go walking. So so it's, it's, it's truly a great place for scenery and for, and for getting outside and enjoying uh, time on, on the trails. Sounds amazing. And uh, and there are many people who tune into this show who have a deep love of trees. And it's something that we talk about on this show a lot. And what I really enjoyed about your book was the all-encompassing description of trees as not just standalone elements. I guess, species, but as a part of a network in a forest or in an environment that really um, encapsulates all of our human senses. And obviously, based on the title, The Songs of Trees, you certainly have that auditory uh, focus for this book. Um, I wanted to ask you, what drew you into thinking about trees through the mode of sound and hearing? Yes. So, you know, the birds, bird song was my gateway into listening to trees. 
for many years I've studied birds and bird song, both as a scientist, but also as a, as a naturalist and someone who likes to go out and get to know the neighborhood. And in doing that as a scientist and also as a teacher, I came, of course, to know each species of bird and for some species, individual birds by their voices. But when I was listening, I suddenly, as it came to me, every one of these trees also has its own individual voice. It's not just the birds or the mammals or people that have individual voices, but a maple tree sounds very different from a pine tree. A eucalypt with the wind blowing through it sounds extremely different from, a, from an ironbark or an ash tree. So wherever we live around the world, we can just by tuning our ears in, we can come to know the particularity of trees as first as a sensory delight. It's just really wonderful to have that knowledge and experience of our neighborhood. But also, and for me, this is even even more important, those sensory experiences lead into a, a series of stories. It helps us understand the physiology, the biology, the evolution of each tree, and in some cases, how the trees are very closely wrapped up with, with human lives as well. So the, the sounds of trees, for me, are, first of all, something to pay attention to in the everyday to enrich my life. And then second, what I mean by the song of a tree is the song has both an acoustic element, but also it has lyrics, it has a story, it has meaning, it has emotional context for, for humans who, who hear it. So the songs of trees are the place where all of those factors integrate both the senses and the intellect and the emotions. Yes, and it really is um, just amazing the kind of descriptive language that you use when you're talking about the sounds of trees. And uh, I did get a chance to also listen to some of your sound recordings uh, that's up on your website, which people can also look at, um, at dghaskell.com forward slash compilation. And uh, it certainly did when I was listening to those birds and um, some of the insects and the beetles that you identify, but also the rain and how the rain kind of amplifies sounds of trees it was amazing to think just how kind of unique each tree's sound was and also the interaction of um, insects and birds and other um, species and animals and fungi with that particular tree it was um, quite eye-opening to when you're listening to the sounds to kind of picture in your mind um, what's happening in these very very far-flung places uh, in the world that you visited and recorded these sounds um, at. I wanted to touch first up on the redwood and ponderosa pine, given that it is uh, from your home state of Colorado, uh, and you write about it and the really fascinating elements of it, including the resin and this, as you've mentioned there, the smells that the tree um, puts out. Could you share with us some of the relationships that the ponderosa pines have had with their beetles and their insects because it seems like it can be a little bit of a love-hate relationship right exactly and it's um you know when i think of ponderosa pines i think of them in in two layers if you like there's the above ground world uh, where the beetles and the resin and, and the people are. And then there's a whole other story below the ground. The tree is actually bigger below ground than it is above ground. The part that we see, though, of course, is, is the above ground. And I mentioned already that the ponderosa pine has this absolutely gorgeous aroma. 
Some trees smell almost like walking into a bakery, a sweet vanilla-like smell. Some other trees, maybe those that have been struck by lightning or have been uh, wounded by insect attack, smell a little more resinous and bitter, almost with a touch of, of bourbon or, or whiskey there. So walking through the woods, sometimes I'll go up the trees and just give them a good sniff. <laughs> um, I expect other people think that I'm a little crazy about this, but when I get a chance to explain to folks on, on the trail, it's like, look, these trees are both signaling to one another, because in all those aromatic molecules that they're making, they're sending little messages to other trees through the air, saying, here I am, here's the number of insects that are on me, do you need to get ready for an insect attack or not by making more resin? So they're chatting to one another through this, this chemical channel. Uh, and then that, that conversation also is a vulnerability for the trees, because how do these beetles that love to eat the inside of the bark of the ponderosa tree how do they find the tree? They also use their noses or the chemical receptors on their antennae and around, around their face to find the tree. And then if, if a tree is particularly aromatic and the beetles get on it, they, they take some of that aroma and absorb it into their bodies and then re-release it in a modified form that attracts other beetles in so they launch a mass attack. So through aroma, the tree is both protecting itself because of the low concentration of the resin defends itself from beetles, but it also is its Achilles heel, if you like. It's the way that the beetles find a way in and can launch a mass attack. And in years of drought, these beetles can wipe out entire mountainsides. So you're looking at a huge mountain that the year before was all green, covered in pine trees, and then after the beetles have been through, the entire forest have gone brown because they've killed every single tree on that mountain. And then, of course, that's very vulnerable to forest fire. And we get, as in Australia, we get enormous fires burning through here, 10, 20, 30, 100,000 acres burn, burning at a time. And those fires have, in Colorado, have increased by at least 10 times over the last few decades. So here in Colorado, the trees tell these ancient stories about the connections between beetles and trees, but they also give us a glimpse into the future if we don't do something about um, how we're uh, changing drought and temperature around the world, a future that, that is going to involve in a lot more fire burning through through natural woodlands. Ponderosa always has burned. It's, it's a bit like a eucalypt forest that every few years a, a fire off a, a fairly low-intensity fire comes and thins things out. But what we're seeing now are these massive blazes that sterilize the whole forest down to the soil. All you're left with is, is sand afterwards. So that's the above-ground network. Yes, exactly. Below ground, trees are foraging for water. They send out these incredible root networks connected to fungi that are seeking out water from, from all around. They're just they're champion uh, harvesters of water in the, the dark, hidden, below-ground world of the soil. Oh, well, let's um, pick up fungi in just a second. Uh, before we finish on the Ponderosa pine, I was struck by some of your language that you used when you were describing uh, a young girl who was in the forest and hearing the Ponderosa pine, and she said, what's that huge sound? And you say that uh, the retreat song is huge, and you say, quote, a glance of wind sets the pines huffing, a modest breeze 
evokes an urgent hiss. Steam escaping from a dangerously pressurised valve. A gust is like a landslide, sand avalanching down a gully. A sound of this kind in the maple and oak forests of my home in the eastern United States would send me scurrying for cover, an eye on the canopy for snapping trunks and falling limbs. But here, the pines carry no such warning in their shouts. It goes on, and I was interested that you also say that the the needles don't bend and that they, they don't flex and that they're unmoved. How did you, how do you experience that? Obviously, you've really um, made it so evocative when you have written about it, but what, um, what kind of makes that sound so loud and so huge to you? Yeah, the, you know, the, of all the forests that I've experienced around the world, the ones here in Colorado, the Ponderosa Forest, are absolutely the loudest. And if you're used to listening to forests in other parts of the world, it really is terrifying because normally when there's an, that much sound coming from a tree, it means that big branches are going to break down and, and crush you and so on, so you better run. Well, the Ponderosa, it turns out, its big sound emerges from its relationship with snow and ice. Unlike other pine trees that are adapted to rain and maybe soft snowfalls, these Ponderosa pines have to withstand very high winds, and also a lot of snow and ice. And to do that, they have needles that are extremely stiff. They're about five times tougher than most other pine needles. You get up to them and and feel them with your hand, and it's like running your hand on a wire brush or some kind of really tough material like that, very spiky. The branches kind of bob up and down. The branches are springy, but the needles are incredibly tough. So when the wind blows through them, the needles just tear up the air. It's like a, a harrow or a bunch of plows running through the soil. The air is torn into all these turbulent gusts and, and eddies, which makes an incredibly loud whoosh. So when I'm out, particularly when I first came to these forests, I would find it kind of frightening, particularly when the wind picked up quite a bit. That This sound just made me feel very uncomfortable, like something very bad was about to happen. Over the years, though, I've come to understand, no, this is the characteristic voice of the forest. No need to be frightened. Just enjoy it. Yes, it sounds like and it's so epic and perhaps it could be described as sublime. It, it, well, there, there's a long tradition of, of people finding the sublime, which is something awesome and slightly terrifying that, that humbles you uh, to to remind you of your place in the world, your small place in the world. And I do think not just the sounds of the Ponderosa, but our experience with almost all trees, whose lives generally are much longer than ours, whose bodies are so much more vast and interconnected than ours. There is something humbling and awesome and sublime in our relationship with them, if only we give them our attention. Mm. We can also just walk right past them and ignore them, but we lose such rich experience if we if we do that. That's so true. And uh, I know that people often have that unspoken connection and feeling around trees, particularly when trees in a forest are so grouped together and interconnected and often 
growing at such uh, tall levels that it does really feel quite awe-inspiring. And one of the other elements of the forest which is really very awe-inspiring is the relationship between trees and fungi. And you describe uh, throughout the book, but in particular areas you provide more of a focus on fungi, um, and one of those chapters is around the balsam fir, and you talk about roots conversing with fungi and sending chemical messages through the soil, um, creating a symbiotic symbiotic relationship um, where the fungi grows towards the roots and replies with their own chemical ooze. And you say that nearly 90% of all plant species form below ground unions with fungi. So from your perspective, um, and given that it is mostly under the ground, but not always, because you also describe how there are fungal cells on tree leaves, but what are some of those really fascinating um, relationships and, and just how important can fungi be to some of these species of trees that you listen to? Well, when I was a, a student, we were taught that plants are individuals, that a tree is just a, you know, it's a, an oak tree or a pine tree just standing there, and one name was sufficient to describe it. We now know that that's an utter illusion, and that a tree is a living network of many, many species. And the fungi are some of the most important members of that community. And as you point out, they're mostly hidden. We can't see them with our unaided senses, but they're extremely important nonetheless. The bacteria in the soil are also very important as well, and they're even harder to study because they're so small. And a tree is made out of a living network of relationships among these different species. For example, at the tip of a growing plant root, the tiny little hair cells there send out messages to the fungi, and the fungi respond back. There's a little conversation, a dialogue, a negotiation between these two kinds. And if, if the negotiation goes well, the cells actually fuse with one another. The, the cell membranes come and hug close together in the most intimate possible way. And from that connection, from that direct physical connection, there's then an exchange that sustains the life of both the plants and the fungi. The plants generally receive minerals and water from the fungi, things like phosphorus, a little bit of calcium maybe. Also water. I mentioned the ponderosa pines, that their, their root system is vastly extended by connection, connecting into the, the fungal network. The fungi are really good at getting out into the soil and dissolving away tiny little particles of minerals and sending them back to the plant. What the plant gives the fungus is what the plant is good at, and that is harvesting the energy in sunlight and using it to weld together CO2 molecules into sugars and other molecules like proteins and, and so on. So the fungus is giving minerals and water. The plant is then re reciprocating with foodstuffs like sugars and proteins. So there's, there's this um, back-and-forth relationship where each partner is doing what it does best and helping the other one out uh, in its area of weakness. We now know that the exchange goes even further than material, though. Information also flows through this below-ground network. If one plant is attacked by insects, somehow that information, probably through a chemical signal, gets down into the roots, 
the roots send, send it to the fungus, which lives in the soil, and the fungus sends it to the neighboring plant, and the neighboring plant asks over further away from that. So the plants are in conversation, are in connection with one another below ground, and that helps them prepare for the attack of arriving insects or for drought or for other assaults that, that they may, might experience. So below ground, in one, just one teaspoon of soil, there are as many cells as there are in the human brain and probably as many interconnections as well. And so, well, I wouldn't say that the soil is exactly like the human brain. Our brain is very centralized and organized. The soil is much more diffuse. There is a kind of interconnected intelligence there that helps the forest, the trees in the forest, all the other organisms in the forest adapt themselves to this place to deal with the rigors of, of drought and fire and flooding and the um, problems that the insects and diseases bring with them, the, the competition that, that happens among plants for sunlight, all of that is mediated and negotiated through these below-ground cooperative relationships. And then in the leaves above ground, when I pluck a leaf from an oak tree or, or a, a needle from a pine tree, my senses tell me, oh, well, this is obviously just a plant here. Well, my senses are deceiving me because if I could look inside the leaf in that very thin area between the upper and lower surfaces of the leaf, there are dozens and dozens of species of fungi, hundreds of species of bacteria that help the plant in its physiological functions. If you get rid of them, the plant can't defend itself from, from insects nearly as well or from invading pathogenic fungi. They can't resist insects as well either. And so the leaf, which seems to be just a plant structure, is actually a networked community. And fungi are a very important uh, component of that, of that community. And I should say that we understand the edges of this, but most of it is a mystery. We've only recently discovered these vast numbers of species living on and in plants. And so the next few years are going to be really exciting as we, as we uncover more of the details of these interrelationships. All of this runs parallel to our understanding of the human body, which is also a living network of a, of a different kind than a tree. But our skin and our gut are also made healthy through relationships with the bacteria, in some cases the fungi, that live on and within us. Without them, we get very sick. So we too are uh, living communities. That's a really great point and a, a great parallel to draw. And um, it's interesting that similarly with humans, we've only just begun to understand the role of our microbiome. And as you say, the, the fungi and the bacteria that exists within our stomachs, our guts, and elsewhere in our um, mm -hmm. systems. Uh, one of the elements you I want to pick up that you've mentioned is the soil. And I've often in my discussions when we talk about um, native forest logging and how uh, it should not proceed, and obviously there's many reasons why it shouldn't, but one of them is that we often um, highlight the fact that trees store carbon and they are very effective at storing carbon, whereas um, there's another element to that, and I was really fascinated that you wrote uh, soils in boreal forests hold three times as much carbon as all the forest tree trunks, branches, lichens, and other above-ground life combined. How is that the case? So in the boreal forest, which is, which is the band of forest that runs all around the Northern Hemisphere, so most of Canada, 
parts of northern Europe and then all across the north of Russia, Siberia, and so on. It gets less attention than the tropical forests do, but it's in fact as big a, a store of, of carbon, or, or depending on whose study you, you believe, a close second to the tropical forest. So it's a very important player in global carbon budget, which is, of course, one of the things that's going to determine what our climate is in, in future. And the boreal forest, because it's so cold and wet for most of the year, things don't decompose very quickly. So when needles fall to the ground, they tend to linger in the ground but not decompose for many, many years. The roots that, that die after they've extended out into, into the soil also persist over years and years. So a healthy forest will, bit by bit, act as a, an increasing carbon store, just building up these massive layers of um, carbon in the soil. And you can hear this when you walk through the forest. It's very spongy. There's no hard slap of your feet on, on, um, on dry ground there. It's like walking on the softest mattress you could imagine. Sometimes your footfall is almost completely inaudible, spongy, soft. And then because of the, the lack of evaporation and the abundant rainfall, they're also very boggy places. So you walk from the forest, sometimes your foot sinks down into a whole load of wet moss, and then you're back onto the forest, soft forest soil. So this acts as an enormous store of carbon, and one of the concerns is that forest fires and the drying out of the forests in the boreal region is accelerating. There are more and more fires and things are getting drier. So some of that big store of carbon could then be released back into the atmosphere. So that's one of the concerns moving forward. Biologically, it means that the soil is the place where much of the action happens, where the trees have to struggle with one another to figure out who gets the nutrients. And what determines the, the winners in that struggle is who can be the best cooperator with bacteria and fungi below ground. So the hidden world of the soil is where the great dramas play out of ecology and evolution, especially in the boreal forest. Yes, it's so interesting to think that. And also, um, you know, you need to certainly expand your mind and be open when you can't physically see a lot of what's happening underneath the ground. Although we do know that it is happening, um, it would be great to know when one day when um, science advances, what, why exactly things are happening as they are. Um, one of the other fascinating chapters in this book is um, around a, a kind of far-flung place to many of us who may not have had the chance to visit, um, and that would be in Ecuador. And um, one of the quotes that I felt summarised the kind of relationship that um, local Indigenous peoples had to their environment was um, this and you highlight, I guess, the philosophical issues and tensions that exist in a Western concept of nature. Um, you say, because life is network, there is no quote-unquote nature or quote-unquote environment, separate and apart from humans. We are part of the community of life composed of relationships with others, so the human-nature duality that lives near the heart of many philosophies is, from a biological perspective, 
illusory. And uh, it seems like when you describe the uh, phenomenal sabo tree uh, near the Tipitini River in Ecuador, that that really does uh, encapsulate what you've just written. Yes, the sabo tree is one of the giants of the Amazonian rainforest. It's a tree that um, takes sometimes 20 or more paces just to walk around its base. Its crown sticks above the crown of all the other trees in the forest. And that crown is filled with other species. There are fig trees that grow up in the crown of the sabo tree. And then in the fig tree, there's another tree that grows on that. And then on the branches of that third tree, there are orchids and sometimes even little cacti and succulents growing up there, depending on whether it's on the south, north, the wet, or the shady part of the, um, of the tree. So this tree is an incredible living community, and it's being deeply connected with the lives of all the indigenous peoples of this region. The people that I spent some time with and interviewed, the Warani, count the sabo tree as the tree of life in, in the creation story, because this is a tree that's that both symbolizes and, in fact, is a concrete manifestation of the interdependence that all life has in the forest. That's true for the lives of the trees, the orchids, the birds, and the people. So when Western philosophy arrives in, in, in places like this, it really has a hard time un understanding or connecting to the reality of the forest, where... The individual is always an illusion. We only live as individuals in relationship with others. So we need a philosophy of, of so-called nature that doesn't place nature outside and apart of humans, but regards ourselves as, as part of this community of life. And that's, I think, part of the unfinished business of the Darwinian revolution is that Darwin taught us that we're all kin to one another. When I look at a tree, I'm quite literally looking at my brother and sister there, often both, because trees are often hermaphroditic, you have to go back a billion and a half years, maybe, to get to our common ancestors. So we're pretty distant cousins, but we are cousins nonetheless. We are blood kin to every other living being in the communities around us and, and around the world. We're also ecologically connected, because, of course, every mouthful of food, every breath of air that we take comes from the work of other species. Uh, the oxygen coming from forests and from the oceans, food coming from the living soil and from plants and, and animals, of course. So our philosophy of nature needs to be one of inclusion and of belonging rather than of separation. And unfortunately, too many, um, not just in, in the West, but, but there is a very strong tendency of this in the West is to put humans outside to say, well, humans are special. We're the only ones with a soul. We're the only ones that have ethical responsibility. We're the only ones with minds and intelligence. And I think all of those notions are imposed from the outside. And from a biological point of view, I think that they really don't hold up to the experience either of modern science that has discovered that, that life is all about interconnection or from the various forms of knowledge, from cultures that have deeply belonged to a landscape, whether that's in Ecuador or in Victoria, Australia, or in, in Russia, or up in, in northern Canada, the cultures that have lived 
in close relationship with forests understand that humans cannot go it alone, that we belong within the community of life, not as outsiders. Yes, exactly. And you do talk about uh, the Warani people who have lived in the Western Amazon for thousands of years and their relationship um, with the Sabo tree, which is considered um, the tree of life. Uh, I just wanted to, before we finish, um, just quickly pick up on one of the fascinating parts of the Sabo tree, um, which is a bromeliad, if I've pronounced that correctly. And you write that uh, the bromeliad can contain four litres in the gaps between the base of its leaves, a breeding site for frogs and hundreds of other species, one hectare of forest carries 50,000 litres of water in treetop bromeliads, much of this volume pulled along branches of the large emergent trees. The Sabo is a sky lake. I mean, that is pretty wondrous. It is, and it's... A, it's you know, when I've visited the Amazon forest, I have come away just utterly stunned by the diversity of the place and, and you know, the, the fact that there are lakes quite literally held up in the sky by the, by the plants growing on these enormous trees is one element of that. Wherever you dip your hand or sniff your nose or, or cast your eye, there are thousands and thousands of species all interconnected one with another, and that's one of the marvels of, of tropical forests. That's true of tropical forests around the world, certainly the tropical forests in Australia. I mean, whether it's the, the more temperate tropics of the beaches um, in the Gondwana forests or further north, uh, the, the tropical forests um, up in the northern part of, of Queensland, same levels of extraordinary diversity and, and ancient interdependence among the creatures of, of the forest there. So the, so the Amazon is a particularly a vivid example of that because it's such an enormous forest of, of certainly such great biological diversity, but the stories are not at all unique to that place. They apply to tropical forests worldwide. Indeed. Um, before we go, in terms of your uh, sound recordings and your field recordings, it's so fantastic that you've um, shared them with people on your website and uh, it's great that people can really have that sensory uh, dimension to the book when they are reading it. Um, if you had to pick one of your favourite uh, sounds from your field recordings, what would it be? Uh, that, that's a very hard question. Yeah. So um, for me, the, the sounds that are unexpected are the ones that are most intriguing. And so one of the uh, sounds that I recorded actually with a hydrophone on a beach is the sound of water moving around the roots of a palm tree as the, the rising sea levels erode this tree from underneath. That cast my imagination into the drama of the roots of trees living in this very challenging uh, environment on the on the uh, on the coast. Another recording is one that I made actually with a an electronic caliper. What I did was measure the diameter of a maple twig at the, at the end of a twig on a sugar maple tree in Tennessee. I put a device that measured how fat that twig was through the night and through the day over several weeks. And it turns out that the twig pulses. It gets fatter at night, and then it draws in. It gets sucked in during the day because water is flowing along it. Like sucking into a drinking straw, as water moves, it draws the, the twig in. 
So the twigs have a heartbeat that pumps every 24 hours. The fat at night, thin in the day, fat at night, thin in the day. And I turn this into sound by converting the measurements of the twig diameter into sounds that we can hear that you can then play on an electronic piano. So that's one of my favorites is to, is to imagine this great daily pulsing of the twigs all around me. And this is true of, of, of almost all trees. They all have this pulse that we can't see with our eyes. It's very subtle. We can't hear it with our ears. We can't tune into that wavelength of sound. But by taking measurements and turning them into sound, we open the human imagination into this really amazing pulsation that, that surrounds us, whether it's a tree on the city street or a tree out in an old-growth rainforest. They're all doing this, this uh, subtle beating of their, of their uh, water movement uh, that's just causing them to expand and contract. Uh, I've got to say, I've been smiling throughout our entire conversation and I can't wait to listen back to those recordings again. And uh, I really want to thank you, David, for chatting with us and being so, um, I guess, generous with your insights and your passion. Oh, well, the insights come directly from the trees. I'm yeah. just a poor translator, but it's, it's a very great honor to be with you. And I, I send my best wishes to you and all your, all your listeners. I hope you'll go and enjoy the delights of, of Australia's trees, which are really of unparalleled significance in, in the world of conservation. And just inc- the diversity of trees is just extraordinary in Australia. So I'm envious of the, <laughs> of the sylvan companions that you have there. Thank you so much, David, and I am grateful for your translation. Okay, thank you, Amy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. So I welcome Nick now, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's really great to speak with you and I found uh, following you on Twitter has been of immense value uh, to keep across the literature and see how research is evolving on this issue and it's really wonderful that um, open access has been enabled by so many medical journals and scientific journals around the world so that uh, researchers and doctors can be sharing really fast and quickly the things that they are learning and observing from the pandemic in different uh, parts of the world. Um, I wanted to first up touch on your experience and background in medicine. Um, And certainly I I saw that you were also a professor of epidemiology in the United States when you were over there working among many other um, fields. Epidemiology has become a very relevant field um, all of a sudden, certainly in regard to the pandemic. From your um, perspective, having uh, some expertise in epidemiology and the understanding of how modelling is created. What are your thoughts on Australia and the calls from the scientific community uh, for the government to be releasing their modelling that they are basing their decisions on? Well, look, I think it's very important that models like the government is using are subject to review by other experts. I mean, it's easy to become fixated on a certain point of view, even for very good scientists, and it's 
good to test those uh, assumptions and the model building with others. And I think uh, I was pleased to hear that the models will be, as I understand it, released on Thursday, or at least that's what's reported. Um, and uh, I think this is this should have happened earlier, to be perfectly frank. Obviously, there are other models. Um, some have been criticised. Uh, we've published some models in the NJA as well. But look, models are basically, um, you know, they're not but they're not reality necessarily. They're representations of either current or possible realities. And, uh, you know, they're subject to what you put in them in terms of the assumptions. But we need to be thinking about all of our options here. And the more we know, the more we can succeed in doing. Yes, and it seems that models should be used and can be used to enable us to be better prepared and certainly to know what perhaps might be a worst case scenario and how we might put in place strategies now to deal with what might come. Um, and one of the models that you have published or are publishing in the latest uh, journal edition is a new model of mortality and COVID-19 admissions, which, uh, as you've written in your editorial, has been validated against Italian data. Um, what for those of us who aren't familiar with the model, does um, the model reveal and encompass and uh, tell us? Well, basically, the model uh, is a very simple model, but it's, it's what's called a queuing model. But essentially what it says is, um, as ICU beds start to fill up, um, and this is what's happened overseas, as they start to fill up, suddenly there's this uh, linear rise in mortality after about... 14 days or so of, 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 of what's called the surge. Now, we're not in the surge at the moment in Australia, but we're talking about, I guess, a, a future possible reality. And once that starts to skyrocket up, um, then uh, basically, um, obviously, more people, unfortunately, die of COVID, the disease. And while you could argue the reasons for this, um, it looks largely like uh, there's not enough ventilator beds in intensive care to cope with the load and therefore the mortality rises presumably because there just aren't enough beds. So the big issue uh, in terms of suppressing the curve as everyone hears about is actually buying time so that we don't end up in a situation where intensive cares are completely full and we get into this model that was reported in the NJA. So, you know, I, I, I hope this model never comes to pass, by the way. It really is a worst-case scenario. But in Italy, that's what they're seeing. In the UK, reportedly, this is not quite there yet, but it's a worry. And in the United States, in New York, um, this is not quite there yet either, but it looks very worrying. Yes, exactly. And we've seen some politicians come out and say we need to increase the number of ICU beds in Australia. Um, people have used a figure of 2,000 being the current capacity in Australia of ICU beds. But I have seen a number of um, people, particularly doctors who are intensivists in the ICU uh, business, so to speak, and they have been highlighting the fact that it's not just having a bed and having a ventilator, but it's obviously also having the highly trained and specialised do doctors and nurses who operate these very um, complex machines. What are your thoughts on the actual uh, medical system and its staffing and ability to staff any kind of increased number of ICU beds? 
Well, I think staffing and obviously the number of ventilators will be key, but staffing will be the big issue, I suspect. Um, I, I'm well aware that the government and, and uh, various hospitals around the country are working very, very hard to upscale ICU capacity, as they should. And a doubling of ICU capacity is relatively straightforward, probably, and a tripling or quadrupling likely to be very possible. But it will be a staffing issue. Not every doctor and nurse can run an ICU bed, can run a ventilator machine, even if there's a machine available. So this is the problem. And of course, if the surge is much higher than two, three, fourfold, well, we won't be able to meet that demand. And again, that's the reason the social or physical distancing, all the rules that are in place need to be in place to flatten that curve by the time and hopefully by buying time not only for beds but also for better treatments and hopefully a vaccine. Yes, that's a really important point is the vaccine being really a, a real important element of enabling us to deal effectively with this and then be able to enact or wind back some of the social distancing measures but obviously that's a far way off given the um, length of time it takes to develop a vaccine and then obviously test it and make sure that it's effective and doesn't have um, harmful effects as well. I was interested uh, in the ICU unit and I know that people put a lot of their hope in ICU um, but from conversations I've had uh, with ICU doctors they also I guess would like the message to get out that they hope you don't end up in ICU anyway because um, often that is the worst case and uh, things can be grim once you've reached such a severe stage of illness that you are ending up in ICU. So I guess a number of doctors have said to me they wish um, people don't get to that point uh, to begin with. So should we be being, I guess, cautious about the fact that um, although increasing ICU capacity is important, that it would be important to even mitigate or reduce um, the level of people needing such a uh, high level of care? No, you raise a very good point. I mean, once you're in an ICU bed, your mortality is unfortunately with this disease quite high. It really is. So we want to avoid that at all costs. Of course, the best way is not to get infected um, and that will protect you. If you've already been infected and have antibodies, presumably you're protected, although we don't know enough about that situation and how long that protection lasts and, 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 and indeed whether you know, you'll still be at risk later on down the track. So lots of unknowns there. <clears throat> and then for individuals in terms of their own risk, Look, besides trying to prevent infection, there are not a lot of things people can do. Obviously, try and stay as healthy as humanly possible and stop smoking and stop vaping. The data suggests you are at higher risk of a bad outcome if you're a smoker or a vapor, even, possibly. Yes, no, there is pretty strong data around that, um, certainly coming out of China where um, smokers were very much at a high risk of mortality and serious illness with COVID-19. Um, one of the other elements of health risk is for healthcare workers themselves. And uh, we've seen, obviously, a number of doctors, not just in Australia, but in America, in New York, in some of these hot spots, and also Italy. Um, and even when China was uh, in the 
thick of it in Wuhan, we were seeing a huge shortage of personal protective equipment and also varying standards as to what is um, effective and what is enough personal protective equipment to prevent uh, healthcare workers getting infected. And then obviously we've seen uh, out of Italy around 51 medical doctors um, die from coronavirus after contracting this infection. From your perspective and looking at Australia's situation, do we have an understanding or a clear enough understanding of um, the status of personal protective equipment in Australia and are the apprehensions of doctors who have been told to be more careful with PPE, um, are they warranted? Well, look, I think uh, this is one of my biggest concerns for doctors, nurses, all frontline health professionals. I mean, it's the ambulance drivers, it's, it's everybody mm. who's, you know, in contact with sick patients with COVID. Um, they all need, everyone needs sufficient personal protective equipment. Now, in a normal situation, we have very clear guidance about the kind of PPE that uh, we would potentially use. But in this situation, um, where in other countries anyway, there's been these surges of cases, and once the surge starts, it continues to accelerate, at least for a period of time. Um, and basically the equipment is insufficient. And then there are some really difficult decisions for the frontline staff and really difficult situations, you know, for everybody. For example, you know, do you uh, allow your frontline staff without effective, you know, effective enough PPE, personal protective equipment, to actually look after those patients? And what do you do if you don't believe that's appropriate? Here is where we need national guidelines, which we don't, to the best of my knowledge, yet have, um, and some guidance about this, because I think we need to be, again, preparing for the very, very worst, and, of course, working extremely hard that we get the best outcomes. Um, I know there are more sourcing of PPE around the world, but, of course, supplies are low. We're going to have to make our own. Um, at least uh, more of it. Um, and I know that's being ramped up as well, but we, we really will need to work hard on this. But I, I honestly believe we've got excellent infection control procedures and personnel in this country in the hospitals. They're going to be terribly important people on the front line. But we also need to be prepared for the situation where we don't have enough PPE and then we're going to have to work out what our strategies will be. And I think we have to protect frontline staff. Remember, if they get sick, they can't look after anybody. The sick ones will have to be, you know, isolated. Um, and um, that may lead to really huge problems in caring when we need more staff, not less, with any kind of surge. Mm. And uh, obviously N95 masks are the most important masks as compared with surgical masks, which are certainly not uh, close to as effective in reducing uh, rates of infection. So um, some doctors I note had been discussing and talking about the private health system and the number of elective surgeries that had been going ahead. Where are we at in that? Because I know that was one of the factors in trying to preserve PPE and our stocks and supplies, and there'd been some debate about whether elective surgeries should be going ahead. Well, look, I, 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 uh, I know some parts of the sector are, are cutting back or have uh, 
ceased anything but urgent or, or, or semi-urgent uh, elective surgeries. Um, and I certainly believe that should be where we are now. We need to conserve all our PPE. We need to uh, rest our, our health teams if we need them. And we need to galvanise the public and private sector, in my view. I mean, remember, we're going to have all sorts of issues if we get the surge, which they're facing in, for example, New York. Um, one issue is if you bring in patients with COVID and you have other patients in the hospital as well, the same hospital, different ward, wards, you get what people have described as COVID bombs. You get these outbreaks in the non-COVID wards. And, of course, they infect staff and patients, um, which means you've got a sort of outbreak, you know, in the hospital, which is very hard to potentially both avoid and control. So, you know, we're going to have to work out what we do with everybody else who needs hospital care, and there'll be plenty of patients plenty of people who need hospital care for non-COVID illness, we're going to have to work out if this surge occurs, what we do in that situation. And uh, I, I think uh, that hasn't been, again, well articulated uh, in my view, and it needs to be. Yes, that's an excellent point. It just reminds me that in the last few days we saw the announcement from the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne that they had um, a number of infections in their oncology and haematology ward um, of some patients, obviously limited patients, but also um, a limited number of staff in those wards. So some early signs that that could happen um, and is pretty difficult to prevent, I'm gathering, given how contagious uh, COVID-19 is and also how dangerous it is to people with other pre-existing conditions, certainly those who might be dealing with cancer. Yes, look, I think anyone who's on certain drugs or has certain diseases is clearly going to be at higher risk of, 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 a, of a poorer outcome from disease. And we need to try and prevent spread to those more vulnerable patients. We need to prevent spread to everybody, of course. But those more vulnerable patients in particular are, are, are a great concern. And there's been higher mortality rates, at least overseas, uh, in more vulnerable populations as well as older populations. So, um, look, this is important. It's going to be very difficult. And one thought I had, although it's just obviously there's many thoughts going around at the moment, is to utilise the private health system and revamp it up for patients who do not have COVID. You have to make sure you test them, though, mm -hmm. um, they, you know, and make sure they don't. Um, and, and to separate physically, um, you know, not just within a ward system, but frankly, within a hospital system, those uh, that are COVID hospitals and those that are not. Now, whether that's feasible, uh, there are lots of complexities around that, whether we should do that now in anticipation. Um, and, of course, if we don't need it, that's great. But if we do, um, it'll be very helpful is all up for debate, but we need those debates. Yes, I agree. That's a really great suggestion and certainly is a viable option for governments to explore. And I know the state government is having discussions with the private uh, healthcare sector and private hospitals over the weekend. Um, you raised their testing and the importance for rigorous testing and to make sure that those uh, patients would not have COVID-19. When we're looking at the testing criteria um, that we've seen be established in Australia, 
Australia and how it has since evolved. Um, what are your thoughts on that criteria, especially in regard to some of the issues that people have highlighted around picking up um, asymptomatic or very mild cases of COVID-19 and uh, perhaps trying to test more widely to pick up uh, just how much transmission does exist in the community that might be happening through very mild and asymptomatic cases? So, look, it's very clear we have community spread. How long we've had that for and how big it is is debatable. Nobody knows because we haven't done the testing to find out. It's thought to be, you know, not as frequent as some other parts of the world. It must be very, uh, very common in Italy, for example, based on the huge outbreak there. Um, and they weren't testing, so they didn't see it. And in the US, similarly. But this is a very infectious disease. I mean, you know, basically, a single person will infect two or three others, and then they'll infect two or three others, and so on, and so on, and so on. So it's very infectious. And that's, that's the problem. You need to test very widely to work out where your outbreaks are and then, you know, attempt to suppress those outbreaks very effectively. Now, if you can't test very widely, and up until recently we haven't had enough tests, I mean, even though we've done a lot, we haven't had enough testing, we would have done more, I suspect, if we'd had more tests, um, then the only other way to deal with this is some of the social measures now in place, for example, in New South Wales, where you, you can't leave your home without breaking the law. I mean, that's essentially what's happened, unless you've got very good reasons, and there are a list of reasons that are reasonable. Um, so uh, this this is, you know, this is the, 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 the sort of the difficulty we have. And the trouble is, and I'll be honest, we now have so many community cases that I suspect it's very widespread. Um, and, you know, we, we, we will just have to see what happens over the next month or so in terms of our numbers and whether the social strategies in place work. I hope they do. Mm. I'm pleased the numbers seem to be falling in terms of number of new cases. That's good, but it's still going up and there's still a lot of community cases. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to see that change, but I'm not yet convinced um, we're in uh, safe territory by any means. And that's uh, the situation. Yes, yes, that's a really important point. And the World Health Organization have regularly been saying that, of course, having a lockdown, either a full lockdown or an almost uh, full-scale lockdown is important, but you also need to conduct rigorous testing, rigorous quarantining, contact tracing, all of those things which some countries have really excelled at, uh, like South Korea. Another has been Germany in the sense that they have been keeping their mortality rate lower than some of their European counterparts. And I did see in the news over the weekend that uh, almost, I guess, the, the Norman Swan of Germany over there at the moment is Christian Drosten, who is a head of virology uh, at Berlin's Charity University Hospital. Uh, he's been advising the German um, government and he suggested that the real primary reason behind Germany's relative success has been the number of PCR swab tests it's been able to run. He's estimated up to 500,000 tests each week. Um, obviously, each country has different capacities and Germany has a, a great manufacturing sector, certainly in, in the scientific realm. But do you think we can learn from other countries and should be learning some of the lessons that other countries have been uh, taking? 
No, I think the lessons are very clear and World Health Organization is correct. It's basically test, test and test. Germany's done it well. Um, clearly, the US did it very badly early on. Um, and this has been an absolute public health disaster in the US. Um, and we don't want to be in that situation. So I think, yes, the more aggressively we can test, the more people we can test, um, certainly we need to focus that testing to some extent at the moment, but, but the sooner we can go wider, um, the better, and that will only aid us in fighting the battle. Once you know a case and you can quarantine them um, and their family potentially because, you know, if they've been in close contact, um, then indeed we can get a much better handle on this and decently suppress the, uh, the outbreaks. And if we can suppress it for long enough, we're going to be able to get back to a relatively normal life, maybe more quickly than some think. But, of course, it's all debatable and we don't know for sure. But maybe that's the case. And Wuhan is a very interesting example of that. Mm, yes. And we have seen two differing approaches kind of emerge in Australia. There's one uh, that's been emerging, particularly in Victoria, of the go hard, go fast approach, uh, which Brett Sutton, our chief health officer, has certainly um, been more of a proponent of than some of his counterparts. Um, I'm interested in how effective that approach might be because there has been in recent days speculation that if you do things quickly, properly and in a fuller sense, uh, we might be able to open things up faster. A lot of people have speculated that if we close things down, it'll be for up to six months and we don't want to do that. It'll damage the economy. But do you think there is um, a trade-off that could be made here? I think a trade-off could be made. Now, look, I, I know they're modelling this at the Commonwealth level very actively, and um, we're yet to see how those models will look. And, and there are other international models out there that say, yeah, you've got to suppress for a long time, and they may be correct for all I know. But my view is, yes, if we could really hammer it, and, and that's the big question now, can we do that in the current situation or have we left it too late? That's, that's, the, that's a very important question no one knows the answer to. But if we could hammer it well and then we have sufficient testing and sufficient standard public health measures whereby if, you, if, a, if there's a case or there's an outbreak, then you immediately quarantine. And you may have to quarantine more than that household. You may have to be, you know, in other words, people would have to be prepared for some of those measures. It's possible that the infection outbreak rate is so low that people could largely go back to their lives. Not completely. We'd still have to avoid handshakes and wash our hands and keep our social distance to some extent. But we might be able to live a much more normal existence until the vaccine, which hopefully will be coming and will work. And, and I think that wouldn't be unreasonable. Remember, we have other infectious diseases out there that break out sometimes and, 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 and there are risks, but, but, you know, they're relatively low. If the risk could be, you know, pushed down low enough for this virus, yes, there'd still be risk, I have no doubt. And yes, it, it's a trade-off, but I think people would be uh, prepared for that sort of trade-off. There's a little bit more risk, mm -hmm. but we live a bit more normal lives. And um, again, that may not take six months if, and a big if, if 
we suppress it. And if we don't, then I don't know how long this is going to go. Yes. Uh, Just finally, Nick, before I let you go, um, you did raise there there are other infectious diseases that uh, can become really quite a problem and circulate within the community. And a number of people um, have some apprehension around winter arriving and uh, influenza perhaps becoming an issue. In terms of surge capacity, we've been discussing the capacity of ICUs, intensive care units, Uh, but ASEM has also been talking about the surge capacity of emergency departments, which uh, I'm sure many doctors would be aware, and nurses too, that uh, emergency departments are busy at the best of times. Has Australia done work to prepare for um, surges of uh, demand for our emergency services and emergency departments in something like uh, a winter season where there's more than one infectious disease uh, doing the rounds? I know a number of hospitals are looking at this very seriously because it's a really important issue. I'm not aware of any national approach or statewide approaches, although there may well be, and I'm I'm just not aware of them. I I wouldn't be surprised. The the good news about the flu season is... uh, we can get, a, we can get uh, vaccination and mm. I guess it will be very important everyone who can, who's eligible, gets vaccinated to try and reduce the load. Um, obviously, if we have a really bad flu season, which I certainly hope we don't, um, then that would compound some of the situations we face um, because uh, that, that can push uh, bed capacity, general hospital bed capacity in winter to uh, a reasonable extent, although nothing like the COVID crisis we've seen overseas. So that's that's at least on the good side of it. Yes. And just maybe on a positive note, uh, given the very recent announcement on telehealth, um, what's your perspective on this? Presumably having seen the debates around telehealth for a number of years now, is this a welcome development for the medical profession? I believe it is, and I wonder if COVID will change a lot of the way we do a lot of things. I mean, I'm currently telehealthing patients uh, in my clinic, you know, the ones who would normally come face-to-face, which is, the, you know, obviously uh, in some ways better. But on the other hand, the telehealth has worked reasonably well in terms of sorting out these problems. Um, so, look, I certainly welcome what's happened here and uh, perhaps in the future we'll be doing a lot more telehealth and that'll be more convenient for patients than the current model that we have. Um, but um, So, there, yeah, there is some good news in all of this despite uh, people's concerns and, and I'm actually optimistic we're going to be able to succeed here and really suppress the infection. Mm, Well, thank you so much. I'm very grateful to you, Nick, for your time and for sharing your thoughts. And uh, it's really wonderful to speak with you, given you are in a great position and to to see the oversight and and look at the new and emerging research that's coming out on the coronavirus and to give us an insight into what's happening now in Australia and what we need to think about. So thank you very much for your time today and I hope you are also doing well. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. So, uh, without further ado, I welcome Emma now, and thanks so much for joining us. No worries, Amy. Coming to you from my car. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's uh, very wonderful to have you flexibly joining us. And uh, and really, I'm, 
I'm sorry that you have to be across such harrowing politics uh, because it is really shocking, I think, for anyone who's been closely observing America's experience with the coronavirus pandemic to see how it had been evolving, not just the media's reporting of the pandemic and some people, particularly Fox News, downplaying uh, the seriousness of the pandemic, but also even President Trump saying that uh, it would just disappear, that we had very low rates of infection in America. And this was before rigorous testing was put in place. And of course, as people know, testing took quite a number of weeks to really fully come into um, effect and have a decent capacity in America. Um, Where are we at now? Because things have since developed quite substantially. Yeah, look, things are moving extremely quickly, you know, even in even in Trump land. It, it, as you said, it was only a couple of weeks ago that Trump was saying, you know, they had one case and it was going to go down to zero and he didn't understand what everybody was so worried about. As it stands, I checked, you know, yeah, a few hours ago and the Johns Hopkins counter, university counter, which is quite a good one, is telling me that the U.S. total infections is 160,000 plus. Um, we're looking at so far about 2,500 deaths and half of those deaths uh, have occurred in New York, which as you said is the kind of centre of, of the virus spread in, in the States. And it is it is quite a terrifying time I think to know a bit about US politics, you know, having a bit of, spent a bit of time there and experienced the health system myself, you know, and that was two years ago and I kind of felt dread at, at going and using that health system in a way that it was set up. So you know, knowing that, I think anybody who knows anything about the, the U.S. health system can see quite clearly that it, it's just not set up to cope with this kind of event. And and even testing, as you say, you know, testing is, is rolling out, but governors in, in states are still saying they don't have enough tests. And without tests, you know, it's very difficult to, to try and contain this. And couple that with, you know, states, all of the 50 states kind of doing their own thing, responding quite differently. And then the president, as I said, you know, saying a couple of weeks ago, it's fine, there's zero deaths, to tweeting out, you know, just in the last couple of days, if we contain it to between 100 and 200,000 deaths, 200,000 deaths, we will have done a good job. Like, that is just astounding, I think. Mm. It is really astounding. And some of the behaviours and things that President Trump has said at these press conferences have been very revealing of his, I guess, internal thought processes and strategies. And many people had been very critical of his uh, I guess, discussion of, of a new deadline, an early deadline to opening up the economy again. He was saying as of about half a week ago, let's open up the economy, go back to work. Everyone wants to go back to work from Easter Sunday um, and everything will be fine and, you know, we might have to keep um, washing our hands and maybe we don't shake hands as much, but everyone wants to go back to work. All the businesses want to open their shops. Uh, let's do that. Where are we up to? Has Trump since moved on from this fixation with an Easter Sunday reopening? Because I think it was really interesting that he said to the media that you want me to fail and uh, and that he really saw the economy and its success as being tied to his election hopes. Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right. He does see the economy and economic performance and specifically the performance of Wall Street, you know, not not necessarily mm. the economy as a whole, but, but Wall Street as deeply tied to his potential success in, in a, 
election campaign in November. And, and that's why we've seen this kind of fixation, I think, on the economy, on reopening the economy, and quite a quick pivot to saying that this is all Democrats are, are talking this up, they're, they're catastrophizing because they want to destroy the economy so that I won't win re-election in November. So that's his language. Mm. And he is, he is right to be worried about the economy because just four days ago, um, the, the Fed's released numbers saying that 3.3 million Americans had applied for unemployment benefits, which is, again, an absolutely astounding number that just smashes all records. And even Stephen Mnuchin, who's the, the Treasury Secretary and very much a Trump man, is is saying that we could potentially have an unemployment rate of 20% in the United States. And that, that's Great Depression levels of unemployment. So Trump is right to be worried, and that's why he's talking about this and, talk, and you know, was talking, just as he said, about reopening everything by Easter. I think that he, he's now saying that was only aspirational, and that's, I think, precisely because, you know, that, that aspiration has, has collided with reality. So he's now extended the sort of quarantining measures until the 30th of April, and, and I would say that would be the 30th of April at least because, it, you know, it's, it's basically already out of control in the United States, and I think it's going to take quite a while to, to try and rein it in. So we're now looking at about, about three in four people in the US are under stay-at-home orders, essentially self-isolation orders. But again, I think in, in order to contain it, that's probably going to have to get stronger and states are going to have to start trying to work together. But that is quite difficult, again, because, as you say, because of the behaviour of the president, who who is kind of contradicting himself, is still playing it down, although he does seem to be taking it more seriously, because the same thing is playing out at the state level. You've got governors like Andrew Cuomo in New York, who, of course, is taking this extremely seriously, but then other governors in places like Florida, for example, who are Republicans and who are Trump supporters, are not taking it as seriously. And, of course, the virus doesn't care about state borders. So, no. basically, I think what I'm saying is it's just a, it's a total mess. Yeah, it's shocking to me to think because Florida does have an ageing population, so a number of their people are at higher risk of a serious illness or even dying. So it'll be interesting to see if things do get more serious over there, whether they do have to start changing their tune. Um, One of the comments that was made around the relationship between the president and the governors was a really interesting one that Trump made when a reporter asked him, what more specifically do you want the governors to do? And he said, all I want them to do, very simple, I want them to be appreciative. I don't want them to say things that aren't true. You know what I say? If they don't treat you right, I don't call. And then he was saying that, you know, he was telling Mike Pence, uh, the vice president who's been put in charge of the coronavirus, oh, well, don't call them back. Don't call back that, you know, woman in Michigan, he says. Don't call back um, the Washington governor. I mean, this is pretty shocking commentary from the president. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's completely despotic, but that, that is Trump. That You know, that is what he is, he is like. He holds grudges. If people seem to be showing him insufficient gratitude or loyalty, he will discard them. And, and in this context, that means letting people die. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's gruesome and horrible to say, but I, I think Trump, Trump genuinely doesn't care if people who don't support him, you know, people who didn't vote for him, do die. That is his attitude to life. So he is... He is treating 
Republicans, different Republican governors and, and governors who show him what he thinks is sufficient gratitude quite differently to governors who he thinks aren't. And that, you know, anecdotally suggest, uh, anecdotal evidence suggests that that is affecting the way that the federal government is supporting states, which is just outrageous. And it's, mm. and it's manifesting in ways that, you know, Trump's saying about New York, oh, they've requested this many hundreds of thousands of ventilators. Like, you know, I just don't think they need that many. I think they only need this many. And to the point where he's actually suggesting that medical professionals are hoarding or then on-selling on the black market medical personal protective equipment, which, as the governor of New York said, is just outrageous and disgusting to accuse medical professionals of that. But that is the, the universe in which Trump operates. And, and again, in this context, that means he is, he is quite willingly and knowingly, I think, putting people's lives at risk. Yes, and uh, there have been some medical professionals, I'm thinking particularly Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has been really uncomfortable with the way that Trump has brought him into some of the debates that are very political in these press conferences. And um, it is concerning to see how some of these professionals are put on the spot. Um, And I'm interested in particular, I've seen statements from governors uh, across the country that have said that they are competing with each other, with other states for supplies, um, but they're also competing against FEMA in some examples, which is the federal um, level bureau. And I'm just interested in that uh, being such a perhaps interesting example of how there is a lack of coordination and a lack of um, equity and order. Yeah, look, that's right. There's a total lack of coordination and and also where I think when you combine that with a what is essentially a for-profit health system, um, you know, where the, the free market is allowed to reign, which means that... Um, you know, prices go up of, of things like ventilators and personal protective equipment, things like masks. Some state governors have complained about the, the cost of masks, you know, increasing exponentially. And, of course, that affects state budgets. You know, that means that states aren't able to afford medical equipment over over other states. So you combine all of this together and, and you know, it has the makings of an absolute disaster where you see nurses in New York hospitals wearing garbage bags because they've run out of personal protective equipment. So that, that is a level of, of what we are dealing with here. And then Trump having kind of petty fights with companies like General Electric about producing ventilators and who's going to produce ventilators and how much they're going to cost. And the president kind of going off his gut feeling about how many ventilators people are going to need, or even suggesting that they'll make them and send them to Italy over, you know, sending them to, the, to their own states, which, again, you know, I keep saying it's astounding. But, but even from the perspective of someone who, who watches U.S. politics really closely to see it play out like this is is pretty um it's still shocking yeah what are your thoughts just finally from the media's uh perspective we've seen discussions particularly rachel maddow saying she doesn't think that the media and the networks should be running trump's press conferences in full live that they should pick out the accurate elements that are relevant for people and then um, air them after the press conference so that we reduce the amount of misinformation what are your thoughts around that and how Trump is using these press conferences to bolster his, um, I guess, approval in the in the electorate? Yeah, look, he, he is using them for, for exactly that reason. He's, you know, they're a racing bonanza, according to the president, because so many people are, are watching them. I think journalists are, are right to be really concerned about broadcasting them live without kind of real-time 
fact-checking. CNN is trying to do it with um, cryons, you know, fact-checking the president as they go. But I think we've already seen that it's really dangerous for people to watch these live. We've we've seen Trump, you know, suggesting that this particular, uh, an anti-malarial drug is is really effective against COVID-19 and it's what people should be taking and why aren't we using this. And we've seen people go out and buy this drug, which is also just coincidentally a common additive to aquarium cleaners, people self-medicating with aquarium cleaners, and a man in Arizona dying from, from using those drugs that the president has incorrectly said work against coronavirus. So Trump's misinformation isn't, you know, it's not funny, it's not a, it's not a joke. It's actually leading to people dying. And so mm. I think it is absolutely right not to broadcast these conferences live. Yeah. Emma, that takes us to the end of our chat, but I want to thank you so much for chatting with us today about American politics, and I hope you are doing well. You too, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.